Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Don Isles. I worked on the uh, software for the lunar module when it landed on the moon. You're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Experience. Heard exclusively here on Talk Radio 77 WABC in New York. Our producer for the Dr. Sky Experience is Dr. D. Richard Dugan. The Dr. Sky Experience talks with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, weather, and celebrity guests in the mix. And how about common sense interviews about our American heritage? And a great guest, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a big fan of the Apollo missions of the 1960s and 70s, and who isn't, as we just celebrated the 53rd anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon, that part in history is what we're going to be talking about today with an author and a person who knows so much about how to land an Apollo lunar module on the surface of the moon. His name is Don Isles. His book, Sunburst and Luminary, an Apollo Memoir. A little bit of a brief outline about our guest. And the book, it opens the curtain on a complex story never before told from the inside. The creation of the onboard software for the Apollo spacecraft. Every word is written by the author himself in his own fluent and unfiltered voice. Fresh out of college, he's assigned to program the lunar descent, the complex maneuver at the apex of the mission. His code is running in the lunar module's computer as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin descend to the lunar surface on Apollo 11. He works directly with astronauts to perfect techniques for landing more accurately. He explores Houston, and at Cape Canaveral, he flies lunar landings in NASA's best LEM simulator. On Apollo 14, he experiences a taste of fame when he finds a timely answer for a problem that could spoil Alan Shepard's mission. With that, we'd like to welcome Don Isles to the Dr. Sky Experience. Sir, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you today. Well, I'm happy to be with you, sir. I'm so fascinated as a young boy. I was 13 years young when the Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And little did I know that one day I'd be talking to a man who he and his team were so much responsible for that safe landing on the surface of the moon. Let's start off with your background and your bio. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started in this whole area, which I'm going to say respectfully as coders. I hope that's a good way to describe your profession at that time. How'd you get started, Don? We didn't call it coders at the time. We called ourselves software engineers or sometimes computer scientists. Uh, I got started because uh, while searching for a job after graduation, I had the good luck to find my way into uh, a sort of a back road behind the railroad track behind MIT, where the MIT Instrumentation Lab had its headquarters. And I walked in uh, and asked for a job, and they uh, gave it to me. Wow. 
Kind of by luck, huh? That's interesting. And the world of 1966 was kind of a much different world than it is today, but coming straight out of Boston University, this must have been an exciting time. And great thanks, I guess, goes to who? John McCarthy and, and George Cherry and so many others that uh, helped you get that job. I mean, it's amazing because you were saying in your book that there was kind of not a good uh, spate of success in the job interviews that you were getting. So you kind of just walked in here. And lo and behold, the rest is what? The history of what we're going to talk about in this interview. Well, the key is whether the place you walk into is hiring. And at that time, they felt a need to staff up quickly because uh, a new phase was beginning. Uh, the software for the lunar module uh, had to be written. That's amazing. And describing your salary there, I have did a little bit of research on you, as every host should do. You were paid approximately $640 a month in those days. Was that considered to be, in those days, a little bit of money, or was that considered to be fairly decent for the time? It was certainly not a princely strategy, uh, but by the ground rule that uh, you should be able to afford your housing, your rental, on one quarter of your gross salary, uh, it worked. Wow. And you also have a great interest. See, what I love about your book, and ladies and gentlemen, in this particular book, it's not a man who's just talking about code and old technical scientific things. There's some of that in the book, which is necessary to explain the great achievements that he and his team did. But what I like, Don, about your book is you have a human side to this book. You describe personal feelings in the time. Describe to us, for those that weren't around in the 1960s when you were a young man, describe that whole experience then. I mean, things were a lot different than they are today. I'd like you to explain to the listeners of this audience, uh, just give, give us the feel of the 60s. Well, it was the, uh, it was the counterculture. Uh, um, um, you know, the music had changed with rock and roll. Uh, sexual mores had changed uh, in part due to the uh, birth control pill. Um, there were, uh, there was a renewed interest in um, what we now call recreational drugs, in particular pot or grass or marijuana, sure. if you will. And uh, there was also, of course, the uh, Vietnam War and the political consciousness that came out of that that activated people in a whole new way. And all those things were going on at once at the time when I was uh, entering my 20s uh, and uh, living in uh, the middle of uh, the middle of it. Yes. A different time indeed, as we talk about and listen to so many great guests that we have on this particular archive known as the Dr. Sky Experience. And if you're just joining us, ladies and gentlemen, so much more to come here on the Dr. Sky Experience. Again, this particular podcast here, heard exclusively on Talk Radio 77 WABC in New York. And our producer proudly is Dr. D. Richard Dugan. Don, describe this, because I'm looking at the book here, and you've written this book, as I said, not just from a humanistic side, but also from a technical side, which makes it really good. And you have the book, as you know, well over 300 pages. Part one is about learning. Part two, as you know so well, is flying. And part three is exploring. I want to learn, what was it like to be in that particular position there as you're working in this particular laboratory? Weren't they first starting to work on navigation systems like gyroscopes and accelerometers for what, conventional military aircraft? Was that how they really got their start? Well, I, yes, to some extent that's true. Uh, the start of uh, inertial guidance system goes back, systems goes back to the early 50s 
And it happened uh, in Boston, or I should say in Cambridge, at uh, Doc Draper's laboratory, which was the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory. And they first used gyros and accelerometers for uh, instrumentation in the sense of strapping them to engines to learn things about how to improve the performance of engines. Uh, during the Second World War, they uh, used some of this technology, gyros in particular, to create a gun sight for the Navy that made a uh, tremendous difference in the ability of surface ships to defend themselves from air attack. And then finally, after the war, they began to apply the uh, the principles much more generally. And a famous event from the uh, uh, instrument laboratory, instrumentation laboratory's history was in 1953 when the first self-contained system was installed in an airplane. It turned out that MIT uh, owned a bomber at that time. Uh, no bombs, I'm pretty sure. Right. But uh, these, this B-29 was equipped with the guidance system and flown from uh, Hanscom Field near Boston to L.A. Uh, and the purpose of the flight was, first of all, to test this system and also to take Doc and his team uh, to a conference in L.A. where navigation systems were going to be uh, discussed. And uh, to make, make cut the story short, they arrived in L.A. with an error of only 10 miles, which was a triumph. And at the meeting, Doc Draper, after listening to many reasons uh, from other speakers why it could not be done yet, uh, came to the front of the room and announced that he had just done it. But the uh, from that system, it was a straight line to the uh, Apollo system. And as you say, uh, some of the stops along the way were uh, military. Uh, many of the components of the Apollo inertial sensor, not the computer, but the inertial sensor, are in common with the early uh, sea-launched ballistic missiles. Very interesting. But it all came to a head in Apollo, where the human interface had to be added, where the computer was added, and it became a much more flexible and complete system. Well, folks can get a good view and actual pictures in this particular book with our special guest, Don Isles, the book entitled Sunburst and Luminary, an Apollo Memoir. And here, I'm looking here at page 191, as hopefully listeners out there will get a good copy of this book, wherever copies of this book are sold, which is just about everywhere, including Amazon. You see Dr. Draper in the navigation simulator on the roof of the building you know so well, IL-7 at 75 Cambridge Parkway. He looks real happy in there, and I guess that must have been a safe spot and a really proud uh, position and a proud moment sitting on top of that building developing these very complex systems that were yet to go uh, to another level, to the moon, correct? Yes, that's very true. Um, the purpose of that simulator was to see whether the optics and the interface, the human interface, was capable of, uh, shall we say, aligning the inertial sensor. Uh, by the time I came along, it was not in heavy use because it had uh, served its purpose. But you could go up there and look at it or even sit in it if you liked. Don, I'm fascinated about this, and I've always had a gap in my knowledge of the Apollo program. And what I'm about to ask you is probably some things that many people out there, of course, would like to know. We always think of Apollo like Apollo 7, and I know and you've had the honor, I'm sure, of talking to Wally Shirai. We've had him when he was with us here on the Earth a few times on our radio shows in the past. But talk to us a little bit about the early Apollos, because 
What we're going to hear in this interview, ladies and gentlemen, is a man who helped develop so much of the software for the descent stage, the powered descent stage, which is about a 12-minute experience. We'll hear this later in the interview. But what were some of those early Apollos that maybe a lot of people don't know about where the lunar module was what? Simply tested in Earth orbit, am I correct? Well, yes. Um, uh, the early flights mostly concerned the command module, and I was a lunar module specialist, so I didn't have a whole lot to do with them and mostly did not meet those astronauts. But the exception of that was the flight that we called LIM-1 at the time, because right. it was the very first uh, lunar module off the uh, uh, out of the clean room at Beth Page, where Grumman built it. And it was an unmanned test whose main purpose from NASA's point of view was to uh, verify the propulsion systems, by which I mean the uh, ascent stage that would get the, the spacecraft off the moon uh, after they had landed and the descent stage that would take them down to the moon. Uh, and they accomplished those objectives, but because of a case where, um, shall we say, our software was misinformed, what we missed on that flight was a rehearsal of the computer control of the spacecraft. Wow. This is amazing um, today, ladies and gentlemen, just hearing this. But please continue, Don. I'm sorry to cut you short. Oh, uh, no, no problem at all. Um, you know, it meant that uh, for Alan Klump and I, Alan was really my mentor and my partner in creating the uh, lunar landing programs. Uh, our first rehearsal uh, was uh, uh, thus ruined, and our next time to see our software running was Apollo 11 itself. Um, Maybe I should say another word about the uh, the LIM-1 problem. Yes, please. Um, we had software uh, that was uh, required to uh, test whether thrust had appeared after the engine was activated, the descent engine. And if uh, thrust was not uh, measured within a certain length of time to shut the engine down, uh, unfortunately, we had not been told that a decision had been made, uh, I think, uh, just before launch to delay the arming of the engine. As a result, it did not come up to thrust, and our software sent the engine off signal. And it was uh, impossible to recycle the software at that point, so NASA took control and uh, did the engine firings under control from Houston. It's amazing. Because when you look at that beautiful spidery craft that you know better than anybody that I've talked to about in Grumman, of course, aerospace, manufacturing this, uh, what, out in Beth Page, Long Island, I imagine, uh, this must have been an honor of a lifetime to be able to not only be part of writing the software, but can you describe the visual of that? I mean, we've seen these particular modules, the lunar module, the command module, and museums. But what was it like to be a young man? I mean, more from the humanistic side, you walk into places like Grumman, and you see this craft there. I mean, it looks otherworldly. Describe your experience. It must have been awe-inspiring. Well, um, uh, ironically, um, I've had better looks at real lunar modules uh, well after Apollo 11 than I ever did oh. beforehand. Interesting. Um, you know, the one that's in the Air and Space Museum at Washington is uh, really, uh, if you're in Washington, you should certainly go and see that because it uh, was a real lunar module and it was lovingly restored. And uh, it's quite quite a, quite a sight. 
uh, my experience of lunar modules while it was working on the job was from the inside, from the cockpit out. Uh, there was a mock-up uh, sharing the space with the, uh, the cockpits in Florida uh, that was used for uh, rehearsing the walking down the ladder, uh, exiting the limb and going down the ladder on the lunar surface. Yes. And, but that was a fairly crude replica, except for those features. Um, but the cockpits that were available in the simulators were the opposite of that. They were realistic to the last uh, detail um, and uh, quite an experience to uh, uh, to get to uh, uh, play astronaut in or sometimes accompany an astronaut in during the lunar landing simulations. You're listening, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Experience, proudly here on Talk Radio 77 WABC in New York. Our producer extraordinaire, Richard Dugan, Dr. D. We're today talking with Don Isles. Yes, there's so much to talk about in this interview today and on our special podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, the book entitled Sunburst, and Luminary and Apollo Memoir, as we continue here in this rather exclusive interview with a gentleman that I think really has so much knowledge, and we're so proud to have him and call him a friend of the show. As you know, sir, this is interesting. So the title of the book, Sunburst and Luminary, if I have it right, Sunburst was the program for the Earth orbit testing lot of the lunar module, while Luminary was the lunar landing portion of that. Elaborate a little bit more about that, because I know for people that are not as technical, you go through some incredible detail in this book, which is important. But please describe the difference between the two and how they were developed. Well, um, we knew these programs best as a big book of paper. Um, Sunburst was the name of the program that flew the mission I was talking about just a few minutes ago, the LIM-1 sure. mission in Earth orbit. Luminary was the program that flew all the lunar landing missions and also Apollo 10, which was the closest rehearsal for the lunar landing. Uh, there was also, by the way, a Sundance uh, in between there to Apollo 9, which was a mission in Earth orbit with both the command module and the lunar module. Uh, I suppose I could have called the book Sunburst, uh, Sundance, and Luminary, but uh, I chose to leave out Sundance because uh, it didn't really concern the lunar landing very much. Um, what these books uh, showed us um, because remember, we're at a time when there were no terminals or uh, of any kind to uh, read, code, own. What these books contained was the program that fit inside a computer that was really very modest by today's standards. Right. It had uh, in all uh, 38 uh, A words. Each word was the size of two bytes, so you could say it had memory totaling 76 uh, kilobytes, of which only four kilobytes was uh, what we called erasable memory, meaning read-write memory. Right. Uh, the other uh, 72 kilobytes contained the program, and since it was divided into two-byte words, uh, there was the capacity for something like 36,000 uh, instructions. And uh, that was all written down in this one lump of paper, which is what we uh, stared at when we wanted to, uh, to think about the code. Um, it was organized operationally into a number of programs, P programs, because they 
were designated things like P-40 or P-63, which happened to be the beginning of the lunar landing was yep. P-63. And there were also routines that bore our names. And this was all laid out in uh, somewhat vague form in a requirements document called the uh, Guidance System Operations Plan. Uh, but we very soon realized that the real-time nature of what we were doing was the the hard part, and that was not really very well covered in the uh, the GSOP, as we called it. Yes. So um, that's what we were doing. We were figuring out how to write the navigation and uh, the other uh, and the human interface and the uh, things that went with that uh, inside a rather small number of uh, possible instructions, uh, say 30,000, um, and uh, to do it in a way that maximizes the uh, capability of this little machine. Incredible. Don, i got to ask you this more from a humanistic side. You know, Apollo 8, we all remember, I was just a young boy, we watched around Christmas Eve in 68, and I've spoken to Jim Lovell on this one, and I got his interpretation of what, the, what, the, what they did. Of course, it was great. But were you kind of surprised that NASA had moved that quickly forward to do that manned mission around the moon? I mean, it seemed like, in my opinion, and I'm not a space uh, scientist like yourself, but wasn't that a little quick? I mean, they made a decision to go in a manned effort. Uh, and look at Artemis today. We're trying to get Artemis to go around the moon, not with people in it. Was that a little surprise to you that they did it in a relatively quick way? Well, uh, I was impressed, uh, shall we say. Um, I... Uh... It showed me uh, working, you know, down in the in the trenches. It showed me that they were serious about doing this. Yes, uh, you know, it came across as a bold decision, uh, but I think it was very definitely the right decision. It was uh, one of those brilliant decisions uh, that I think were uh, probably necessary for us to uh, meet the meet the goal. That, uh, President Kennedy had said. Absolutely. You know, this is amazing. Let's go back to November 6, 1967. You described that as a very interesting day. There you are, I guess, with your other colleagues, conducting a special meeting with the astronauts that would be the first and second and possibly third and maybe even fourth to the landing of the moon. But you describe in there the humor of Pete Conrad. I always followed him. I never had the privilege and honor of speaking with him. As we know, sadly, he perished in a motorcycle accident, as very much as sad as that is back uh, here on Earth when he did all these things in space. But describe that meeting, because now we're talking, what, in that room with not only national heroes that go to the moon, yourselves and the people developing the luminary portion for the lunar landing and descent. That must have been quite an experience. Uh, talk a little bit about that and Pete Conrad. Well, it was my first exposure to astronauts, and it quickly erased any idea that uh, astronauts were... Uh, uh, the least bit, what's the right word, the least bit uh, um, uh, cut from the same cloth, shall we say, yes. because uh, they showed a variety of types. And uh, uh, I wasn't uh, invited to the meeting in its entirety, mm. but at the point where the meeting reached the uh, area of the uh, lunar landing programs, uh, Alan Klump, uh, who uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago, he uh, let me know that I should come in, so I did. And uh, at first I assumed that 
the sort of uh, 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 molding uh, guy with a gap between his teeth and a nice <laughs> glint-plaid suit who was mostly on his feet wow. uh, was uh, some sort of particularly buoyant NASA manager, but it was actually the astronaut Pete Conrad who uh, was uh, very expressive. You know, I, uh, it's uh, a little hard to... Uh, to uh, to, to describe because it was a blend of uh, you know extreme intelligence uh, with a little bit of an all shucks sort of a manner. Yes. Uh, ironically, of the Apollo astronauts, he was the only Ivy Leaguer. He was from he um, got his degree at Princeton. Didn't know that. Um, wow. Uh, yes, I uh, you know I in the book I resisted the temptation to characterize astronauts according to. Uh, what film star they reminded me of. But uh, for me, Pete Conrad was sort of a mix of uh, Richard Widmark and Slim Pickens, uh, <laughs> you know, the cold calculating versus the, uh, you know, the, the fun loving. Yes. Um, but um, also at the meeting were uh, Jim Lovell, who I don't remember so well from the meeting and uh, Neil Armstrong who uh, I do remember one of the things he was interested in, which was the uh, one of the meters that uh, that our software used to give into, uh, information to the astronauts in the cockpit uh, was uh, oriented in a fashion that made interpreting its uh, meaning not totally straightforward. So he discussed that a little bit, which was a, an eye opener for me in um, as to uh, astronaut thinking, the way astronauts thought. Yes. Well, folks, you're here with me, Dr. Sky here on Talk Radio 77 WABC in New York. The Dr. Sky experience continues. And what a great guest, folks. Don Isles, his book, Sunburst and Luminary and Apollo Memoir. When you watched, if you're old enough like myself, I'm 66 years young. I remember seeing this lunar landing. I had to ask permission, Don, from my parents to stay up late that night on the East Coast time zone there, but wow, what an experience as we all saw the handiwork that you and your team helped was kind of the silent heroes of this particular mission, as I would like to describe it. But I want to go, and I always do a tribute to the astronauts of Apollo 1 for the sad event that happened January 27th, as you know, 1967. But I learned something in your book by describing, and this is no reflection on you on the software side of this, but poor Gus Grissom, God bless him, you describe him sitting in a, a bar by himself in Cocoa Beach, and he was kind of frustrated, as I'm sure I would be, and any other astronaut, at the time with the spacecraft, all the problems they had with the Apollo 1 capsule. What did he say? And I quote, what we have here is a Heath kit, and that's an amazing end of quote. Describe him. Had you ever met Gus Grissom yourself, sir? Uh, I'm afraid not. Uh, I, I never... Uh did have occasion to meet him. Uh, I began to meet astronauts um, in the run-up to Apollo 11, uh, wow. other than the, the meeting in 1967 that I described. Well, let's start in, in there. Let's continue here in the rest of the time that we have here, and I appreciate your time, sir. This is just awesome. I could go on for hours here. The Apollo 11 mission, of course, Apollo 10 came within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface, and you know, if I was on board there, I probably would have brought that baby down to the surface, but they followed the good rules with all the software that you had developed and the things that happened. To describe this whole scenario, as we describe it you in your book, and I think people should really read this, is that there's actually three separate 
maneuvers that have to take place. What? Three phases for the lunar landing. And you describe them in the P version, like P-63, P-64, P-65. Can you give us, I know it's kind of technical, what do they need to do? And how did the Apollo 11 then make its journey down to the surface of the moon? Um, yes, I'll, I'll describe that. Let me, let me backtrack on, on one point. Uh, sure. I mentioned that Luminary flew all the lunar landings, mm-hmm. uh, but Luminary was a program that continued to evolve. Uh, so in a sense, the program for each mission until we got to Apollo 15 was actually different. New capabilities were being added. Mm. Uh, occasionally, uh, bugs were found. Um, and so the Apollo 10 program, which I believe was Luminary Revision 69, approximately, uh, would not have done, uh, needed more work before it was ready for a lunar landing. Uh, so uh, for Apollo, and uh, leaving aside the question of fuel, for Apollo 10 to have tried to land would not have uh, worked out very well. Uh, now, the lunar landing did have three phases, um, which uh, was important uh, in in large part uh, to make possible landing accurately at a spot on the moon. Uh, there were two, th- the main thing that had to happen to land, to go down from lunar orbit to the moon, was to shed velocity. We were okay. going... Uh, you go around the moon much slower than around Earth. So we were going, I believe the number is around 3,600 miles per hour, uh, 5,500 approximately feet per second, the way we thought of it. And uh, that's with respect to the moon. And the main job is to cut that down so that your velocity with respect to the moon uh, at the point you touch it is a very low, uh, you know, a few, you know, three foot feet per second, let us yes. say. say. Uh, you also need to be uh, right side up when you land on the moon. Uh, you also want it to be not in the middle of any uh, violent maneuver. You want to be in a fairly calm state. So to do that required an equation that could satisfy fairly complex uh, terminal conditions. Um, the other thing was that it had to be possible for a reasonable amount of time for the astronauts to be able to look out the front window of the limb and see the area in front of them where they were going to land sure. uh, and to be able to modify their trajectory if they saw that they were coming down in a, a place they didn't like. And that required uh, cutting the landing into several phases. Uh, the first phase, which was de- designated P-63, was called the breaking phase. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it began at an altitude of about uh, uh, 50,000 feet and a velocity wow. of about 5,500 feet per second. And it began with the limb thrusting directly ahead, you know, directly into the direction of motion, right. uh, trying to shed that velocity. And uh, during that phase, which lasted 10 minutes or so, the limb gradually did maneuver to a more erect posture. But even until the end, the view ahead was not really satisfactory. Um, The way we achieved the visibility requirement then was to switch to a second phase, which used the same equation, but with different targets. And 
uh, as a result of the targeting, uh, that caused the limb to pitch forward so that now uh, the astronauts had a good view of the surface. And on every mission except Apollo 11, you'll find the astronauts are reacting uh, vociferously and enthusiastically at that moment because they've trained above all to be able to orient themselves at that moment to recognize the pattern of craters ahead yeah. that would um, uh, orient them and show them where to go. Well, this um, is fascinating so, that so, you bring this up, sir. Yeah, because, excuse me for just jumping in here, but sure. they're all watching something called what? The disky, which is this five display, kind of five five line character display. And I'm amazed that that was their what? That was actually the, the key to this, where they had an input on that screen or onto that device, the various P programs that you're talking about. But how did you describe it? You call it the disky, is that correct? A uh, disky for display and keyboard. And I'm just curious. I go back in the old days when a lot of my electronic engineer friends of the 60s, they said in those days they didn't have really good displays like we have today. They had something called Nixie tubes. Is that something that was around at that time, I guess? The old oh, displays? Yes. Nixie tubes were around. Uh, the displays in the disky were not Nixie tubes. Okay. And uh, I can't really speak to exactly what they were, but some mm -hmm. sort of electroluminescent uh, display. And it was strictly numeric. Uh, they, were, they were just looking at numbers, and they had to know what those numbers meant, and they had to know where the decimal point was. Now, uh, uh, some uh, of the phases uh, did not have to be selected through the disk. Some of them could be selected automatically, or some of them could be uh, selected by uh, uh, changes in the switch settings in the cockpit. And uh, I hadn't quite gotten to the... Uh, um, um, sorry for that dinging. I hadn't quite gotten That's to okay. the third phase of the lunar landing, which was the very last part where mm -hmm. uh, the astronaut, with the assistance of the computer, is flying the limb somewhat like a helicopter, sort of a stick and rudder style, yes. uh, during the final couple of hundred feet of the lunar descent. Oh, that's incredible what we're hearing here on this particular interview today. But, Don, as the uh spacecraft, the lunar module is descending to the moon on Apollo 11. We have this thing that I never got anybody to be able to explain it, and I know you can. They get a 12.02 alarm, and then a 12.01 alarm, is that correct, as they're getting down to the surface of the moon? Uh, there were five alarms in all, and uh, the two types you mentioned, they were all of the two types you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, of course, a scary moment, because something was happening in our computer that at the time we did not understand. Um, however, the uh, the spacecraft stayed on trajectory and uh, didn't show any other problems than these alarms. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened, however, uh, when each of these alarms occurred <clears throat> was a reboot of the software on the fly. And uh, that, of course, was uh, a bit scary. Yes. It was all caused by sort of a misunderstanding the electronics that was made possible by a switch setting in the cockpit that uh, possibly was ill-advised and maybe hadn't been totally thought through. 
But they came kind of close to potentially what? The abort button, which you don't want to push, correct? I mean, that was, or is that not true? They were actually on to continue. Obviously, Mission Control thought it was good, but were they actually really close to actually telling them to punch that abort button? Oh, I think they were quite close. I mean, I think that was exactly uh, the situation. Uh, Do we continue this lunar landing? Is it safe to continue this lunar landing? Uh, Of course, a lunar landing is never safe. But uh, shall we continue this lunar landing or shall we abort? And in this case, Mission Control had a better perspective on the problem than we did in Cambridge. Well, Don, it's all to the success not only of Mission Control, but you and the great people behind this team to develop something that most humans on this planet really don't have an idea of about how to get to the surface of the moon in the most difficult, what, 12 minutes of all. But hopefully in a future interview, if you're so kind to give us your time, I'd love to continue, but just really quickly through this, and we have a few minutes left, on Apollo 12, never had had the opportunity to meet Pete Conrad, but I did talk with Al Bean once. As you describe it in the book, the rocket is launched and lightning strikes the actual Saturn V and then they get this whole, what, a blackout on their, con- on their whole consoles. And then there was this way to save it that really not too many people knew about. It was something where you had to hit a switch or do something called SCE to auxiliary. And I guess what? That saved the, the emission. That, that would have been a potential real disaster, right, if nothing came back online. Well, um, the, astro- the uh, spacecraft would have reached orbit safely, oh. even without SCE to aux. Okay. Uh, it is a famous incident. John Aaron, I believe, is credited with coming up with that. And uh, by by thinking of that, and by the switch being flipped in the in the cockpit, it gave it restored information to the ground. It it let it allowed the ground now to see what was happening. So I think it was very important uh, for that reason. Um, um, well. That is amazing in history. But I wanted to ask you quickly, and again, if you're kind enough to do this with us in the future here on the Dr. Scott Experience, we'd love to do a part two of this and even do some other things where we do on big movie theaters around the country where we have guests pop in on different various means like uh, Zoom, where we actually have an audience in there to do a talk back. But what Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you is we both had the opportunity of, of knowing Dr. Edgar Mitchell. But tell us briefly the story of Apollo 14, because you obviously had your 15-plus minutes maybe in fame on this, and it wasn't your plan, but you're the one who figured out something. What was it that happened with Apollo 14? Well, uh, once more, it was my software that was involved, as it had been on LIM-1 and again on Apollo 11 uh, with the alarms, Um, because um, it was discovered uh, in Houston uh, during the hours leading up to the lunar landing, uh, that a switch in the cockpit was sending a spurious signal, and it was the abort switch or the abort button that would be used during a landing <clears throat> to immediately command an abort. Uh-huh. And uh, if that did occur during the landing, uh, it would ruin the mission uh, because it would have been uh, impossible to recycle. So. Uh, the reason my software was involved is that that switch sent a signal to the computer, which at this point, well before the landing, we weren't looking at. Uh, they just were able to see it on a console in Houston. 
Um, but uh, once the lunar landing started, a piece of software would start running, which I had written, mm-hmm. which uh, tests uh, for an input from those switches, uh, because there are actually two, the abort and abort stage switch. And if it sees that one of them has been pushed, it dispatches the uh, the correct program to do the abort. And um, so what I was able to do was to come up with a way to defeat my own software uh, to make it not sensitive to this input. And so that was the the, the germ of the idea was to set something that indicated the abort was already in in process, uh, which wasn't true, but the indication could be set, which fooled the uh, software into not looking at the buttons. And, of course, there were some other consequences that had to be dealt with. But uh, we did develop that procedure in Cambridge over the course of an hour or so, uh, test it in Cambridge. It was tested in uh, Houston, and it was read up to the spacecraft. And uh, with uh, admirable uh, song Fla, it was... Yeah. Uh, uh, adopted and uh, keyed into the computer by Mitchell. You know, that's real genius, and, and I'm so honored to have you here today, Don. Really, I'm serious. I'm a big fan of the space program. I never flew anything in space, nor am I an astronaut, just a journalist that tries to do the best by listening to great stories. But i got to ask you this. As we talk about NASA 2022, we've been talking on our shows around the nation about Artemis One. Interesting. I find out that the SR-25 engines on there, they're not brand new engines. They've been flight tested. They say 405 flights. The SR-25s have been a generally good engine. But let me ask you from the personal side, the NASA of today, I mean, again, I don't mean to get very political here, but I just got to ask the question. There seems, in my opinion, by talking to so many space pioneers and people, that there was a different type of feeling. And your description of what the feeling was like, and I'm quoting you, Primed for adventure, end of quote. What's going on with NASA? I mean, if you were there to tell them to advise them, are they doing everything right, or is there something wrong that we're not looking at here in Artemis? Well, it's a a difficult subject. I don't think there's anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I do think that some spirit that we had uh, back then is missing. And it's hard to put your finger, my finger on uh, what that is. Uh, It was an ability to go directly at the problem, uh, it seems like. And in a way, I mentioned our little computer that had the capacity for 30,000 lines of code. Um, But in in some small way that was an advantage and the very practical and simple design of the lunar module uh, was sort of uh, looking directly at the problem without uh, somehow there's a sense of, uh, of complication having entered that we didn't feel in those days. I don't think I've expressed this very well. Uh, you know, I still have confidence in NASA. I'm also oh, sure. amazed by what uh, uh, Musk has done. Um, and I think uh, they will have success. And um, their concept, I think, is sound for uh, the moon on the way to Mars. And I'm looking forward to them uh, having a success with that. 
um, even though I think uh, um, perhaps they're uh, uh, too, uh, they're certainly much more bogged down in a managerial culture than we were, shall we say. That's exactly uh, what I was going to say. I agree with you there, sir. I'm, again, a big, big fan of what NASA's done, and especially what you folks have done. But I hope in the future that we can do this again here on the Dr. Sky Experience. I want to thank you for your time, and please stay on the line with us as we conclude this Dr. Sky Experience here exclusively on Talk Radio 77 WABC out of New York with our producer, Richard Dugan, Dr. D, as we explore these great realms of astronomy, space, aviation, weather, celebrity guests, and common sense interviews about our American heritage. Thank you so much, Don. It's a privilege and honor. The book, Sunburst and Luminary, an Apollo memoir, again, published by Fort Point Press. You can get the book wherever good books are sold. And uh, let's talk again. I always say this to everybody, and I think you would agree, sir. Always what? Remember to keep your eyes to the skies. And thank you for what your team did back there quite a while ago, ladies and gentlemen, at the Great Minds of MIT. Their logo there, their mantra, men's at Manus. Mind and hand. Thank you so much, Don Isles. Stay on the line with us and thank you. Until next week, we'll talk more on the Dr. Sky Experience. Email me at drskyshow at gmail.com. That's D R S K Y show at gmail.com. Thank you, Don. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>